So today we're going to be reviewing the topic. See if I can make this go. There we go. If you you can read at your leisure my financial disclosure uh, information and the learning objectives for this discussion. So I'm going to start right off talking about the update from the 20th CROI this year. There were a number of clinical themes that emerged from the conference, some of which I will cover in my discussion, but understanding that a number of the topics being presented by other speakers today will also have updates from information presented at CROI relative to their topics. I'm going to cover HIV cure and functional cure, for which there was lots of buzz at CROI this year novel antiretroviral drugs and drug classes, which had fairly limited information, at least in the clinical arena. PrEP and antiretroviral therapy for prevention was also a major theme of the conference this year. And those topics will be covered by other speakers today. And I will provide you with a little bit of information about opportunistic infections, complications, end organ disease, and ongoing inflammation as they relate to the two major OIs that were talked about at CROI this year, hepatitis C and tuberculosis. Dr. Peters will be covering hepatitis C, so I will not do that. And I'll talk about some of the consequences of inflammation and end organ disease. So let's jump right in to cure and functional cure of HIV infection. Many of you who read newspapers or see the news on television will have understood that there was a major uh, event presented at CROI this year referred to as the cured baby. This referred to a mother who presented at 35 weeks of gestation with no prior prenatal care and had a precipitous delivery. During that delivery process, she was tested with an HIV rapid test that was positive, And her infection was confirmed by viral load. And she had a relatively well-preserved CD4 count. The infant had two independent nucleic acid tests, antibody tests for HIV infection, and was presumed also infected at the time of delivery. So it was started on potent antiretroviral therapy initially with cydovidine, lamivudine, and nevirapine within 30 hours of life. And subsequently, the nevirapine was switched to lopinavir, ritonavir after an HIV RNA level was positive and HIV DNA levels were positive. The baby demonstrated a typical biphasic viral decay to undetectable levels at 21 days of life after starting antiretroviral therapy. Subsequent to about 18 months of age, the mother and infant were lost to follow-up. According to their history, when they reappeared, the caretaker for the infant had discontinued antiretroviral therapy at approximately 18 months of age. But they were then re-engaged in care when the infant was about two years old. He had been off of antiretroviral therapy for about five months at that time and had still an undetectable viral load. The left-hand side of your slide just summarizes the information I just presented. The right-hand side of the slide summarizes the workup that was done for this infant after they reappeared into care. At 24 months of age, HIV antibody by EIA and Western blot were negative. The infant had no HIV-specific CD8 or CD4 T-cell responses. Standard testing for HIV RNA and DNA was undetectable. But ultra-sensitive assays, both at month 24 and month 26 of life, demonstrated very low levels of HIV RNA 
and HIV DNA, suggesting that indeed the infant was infected. There remains some controversy about the case presentation, but at best, our conclusions from the initial data that were presented is that this baby represents a functional cure of HIV infection and can now be added to the other functional cure of HIV infection, the Berlin patient, which was an adult patient who underwent bone marrow transplantation. So I think this generated a lot of interest and a lot of energy for ongoing work that is starting to emerge, both at this conference and others, about how we can effect a functional cure in individuals with chronic HIV infection. One of the studies that uh, relates to this topic is an issue about the attempts to purge the latent reservoir. One way of accomplishing a reduction in the size of the latent reservoir was presented in this trial in which early antiretroviral therapy was initiated during the very earliest stages of acute HIV infection. This was a study from Thailand in which 89 patients were identified with acute HIV infection through screening with nucleic acid and enzyme immunoassay antibody tests. And they were offered the option of starting potent antiretroviral therapy within the first two to five days of their diagnosis. Patients were monitored with rectal biopsy, lumbar punction, puncture, and leukophoresis for peripheral blood mononuclear cells in order to use those as testing for latent reservoirs. And the conclusion of the study, I won't go into all the details, suggested that those individuals who were started on antiretroviral therapy within the earliest FIBIG stage one of acute HIV infection, and the red box just highlights for you the definitions of the FIBIG stages for acute infection, had lower total HIV DNA when compared to people who were later during acute infection. And among those who elected to start antiretroviral therapy, 92% of them at one year of follow-up had undetectable integrated HIV DNA in peripheral blood mononuclear cells and sigmoid colon biopsies. The conclusion from this study was that the earliest stages of acute infection are those stages at which you can intervene with a potent antiretroviral therapy, and you may indeed affect the ability of HIV to integrate into the host cell DNA. So if that's true, one of the other approaches in cure and functional cure research at this point is to try and intervene by purging that latent reservoir, activating HIV that's integrated, and allowing it to produce replication-competent virions. One of the popular approaches under investigation at this point is the use of varinostat, or SAHA, which is a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Histone deacetylase inhibitors are being used broadly now in research studies for activation of the latent reservoir. This particular agent activates transcription of both host and HIV genes, which results in activation of production of cell-associated HIV RNA, demonstrating productive replication-competent HIV virions. The theory here is that by reactivating replication-competent virions, combining these agents with antiretroviral therapy and other immune modulation uh, interventions coupled with the host's own T-cell responses, you may eventually be able to clear the reservoir of integrated HIV DNA. 
Last year when I talked about this topic, there was only a study, a proof of concept study using a single dose of varinostat, which showed that it did indeed stimulate HIV transcription. This year, those findings were expanded upon in a study in which individuals were given multiple doses of varinostat, or SAHA. And in this study, 20 patients who were ART naive started antiretroviral therapy a median of five years earlier, had undetectable viral loads at each time point in that five-year period, and a median CD4 count of 724. They were given 14 days of dosing with varinostat, and they were monitored by measuring using single copy assays, HIV RNA, uh, LTR circles, HIV DNA by real-time PCR, looking for integrated DNA in rectal biopsies and other reservoir measures. In the conclusion from this study was that the drug was safe and well tolerated. It was in, it, capable of inducing a significant and sustained increase in cell-associated HIV RNA in CD4 T cells in peripheral blood, but had no significant impact on integrated HIV DNA. And this was a little bit of a disappointment in terms of multiple dosing, but this is a popular approach now to purge the latent reservoir. And the hope is that with alternative HDAC inhibitors or higher doses over a longer period of time, that we will indeed see evidence of changes in HIV-integrated DNA. I'm going to move on now and talk about some of the data about investigational new drugs. The first of these I also presented a little bit of data on last year was the prodrug of tenofovir, now referred to as tenofovir alafenamide, or TAF. There, this particular agent as a prodrug has two key features. It results in a 90% lower plasma concentration in blood as compared to conventional tenofovir and a five-fold higher intracellular concentration of tenofovir diphosphate levels, the active compound. In a 24-week phase two randomized clinical trial, comparing TAF with conventional tenofovir combined with L-vitegravir, cobicistat, and emtricitabine in ART-naive individuals, the week 24 data showed that comparable levels, uh, comparable proportions of individuals had undetectable HIV RNA in plasma at the end of 24 weeks. And as suggested by preclinical data, peripheral blood mononuclear levels were indeed five-fold higher and plasma levels 91% lower for those in the TAF arm. Serum creatinine and creatinine clearance did increase in both treatment arms by week two, but it, there was a mean percent decrease in bone mineral density by DEXA that was significantly less in the TAF arm, suggesting that the promise of lower plasma concentrations might indeed be associated with lower complication rates associated with this particular prodrug of tenofovir. Another new compound that was presented at this meeting was from Merck. Merck 1439 is a new or novel non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. And in a randomized phase one clinical trial in 18 ART naive men, this particular agent was given once daily for seven days. And the results demonstrated at both the low and high dose that adverse events were few. They were transient and low level. 
One patient developed acute hepatitis C infection, although this was not study drug related. The mean half-life was 31 to 41 hours, suggesting that this was indeed a once daily drug. And comparable levels of HIV RNA decline by day seven were seen in both the 25 and the 200 milligram arms. There were no treatment emergent viral breakthroughs, so this is an agent that will continue in, pre in clinical development. The last new drug compound I'm going to tell you about is an entry inhibitor, a second generation Senecriveroc, which is a novel once daily CCR5 and CCR2 antagonist. This study was compared in a 24-week trial uh, in ART-naive adults, was compared with efavirenz as a standard of care arm, and as you can see from the slide, I think I have a pointer, it doesn't show up very well, but the two doses of Senecriveroc produced comparable levels of reduction in HIV RNA at week 24. The virologic non-response was slightly higher in the two entry inhibitor arms compared with efavirenz, although this was not statistically significant. But there were more individuals in the efavirenz arm who discontinued drug due to an adverse event, 18% compared to 0 and 2% here. And comparable levels discontinued for other reasons, and the mean change in CD4 counts were comparable, suggesting that this may indeed be a successful entry inhibitor comparable to efavirenz treatment in ART-naive individuals. One other topic related to antiretroviral therapy I'll just touch on briefly before moving on is the issue of transmitted drug resistance. There were a number of papers presented at CROI this year related to this topic. The first was presented from the HOPS cohort, first of all demonstrating that over time individuals are following or adhering to treatment guidelines suggesting that ART-naive individuals undergo genotypic resistance testing prior to starting antiretroviral therapy. But of note, about a third of individuals in the latest time period still were not undergoing genotypic testing prior to initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Despite this, there were no significant increases in transmitted drug resistance identified in this particular cohort, although when looking at different subgroups within the cohort, in particular um, persons of color or racial and, and ethnicity differences in individuals who were starting antiretroviral therapy with high CD4 counts were two subgroups that had slightly higher rates of transmitted drug resistance. Uh, in another similar analysis, the overall prevalence of transmitted drug resistance was estimated at about 17.5%. This value hasn't changed much in the last several years, with the highest rates of drug class resistance seen in the NRTI category and the NNRTI category, with low rates of transmitted resistance in the protease inhibitor class. In a separate study, integrase inhibitor mutations are starting to emerge as transmitted drug resistance mutations and were seen in about a fifth of individuals tested in one study. And lastly, additional studies show that there are continued to be low rates of protease inhibitor resistance, particularly among those who were treated initially with darunavir. So I think this is good news, suggesting that with added genotypic resistance testing across the board, we're not seeing tremendous increases in transmitted drug resistance. So I'm going to move on now and talk a little bit about end organ disease and immune activation and inflammation. 
you know from many previous discussions here at an other conferences that both IL-6 and D-dimer levels are serum markers of acute inflammation and are associated or have been associated with the risk of serious AIDS-defining and non-AIDS-defining conditions. In a pooled study across three large observational cohorts, the ESPRI, SILCAT, and SMART trials, in patients followed over a median of about five years, the investigators identified 262 critical non-AIDS cancers or cardiovascular disease events. And in this study, they were specifically looking at the ability of IL-6 and D-dimer when combined into a score to predict those events and found in a multi-regression analysis that each was independently associated with the risk of a serious event, but importantly, in combination as a score, it, they were associated with an increased risk. And the authors suggest that this may be a useful thing both in predicting individuals at risk and in following individuals on clinical trials for endpoints of non-AIDS-defining events. In a similar study looking at other markers of immune activation, a case-controlled study done by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group through the ALERT large observational co cohort identified 143 events, non-AIDS death, MI, stroke, and non-AIDS cancers and serious bacterial infections, and looked at not just IL-6 and D-dimer, but another, a number of other serum-soluble markers of inflammation, as well as cellular activation markers and senescence markers. In logistic regression models that controlled for traditional risk factors, um, this may be hard in terms of numbers to see, but what you can see is all of the soluble markers, with the exception of IP10, at baseline and all of the soluble markers measured at pre-event were all statistically associated with increased risk of non-AIDS defining events in this study. However, the measures of T-cell activation were not consistently associated with non-AIDS defining events and this likely related to the fact that although the ser soluble serum markers were not affected, there was an interaction between the extent of CD4 T cell response after starting antiretroviral therapy and the measures of T cell activation, such that those individuals who had uh, the highest rise in CD4 T cell counts were also those individuals who had lower risk of non-AIDS defining events and that interaction impaired the ability to have T cell activation measure consistently in association with non-AIDS defining events. Now let's drill down into some specific non-AIDS defining events, and more importantly cardiovascular disease risk. We're starting to look at sensitive measures of cardiovascular disease risk in HIV and you'll hear more about some of this from Dr. Justice's talk, but I'm going to talk right now about coronary artery calcium and non-calcified coronary artery plaque, which is a measure of early stage atherosclerosis and non-calcified plaque in particular is a more vulnerable plaque, more vulnerable to rupture and myocardial infarction. In a study of 411 HIV infected individuals with, compared with 234 uh, relatively well matched uninfected men, Advancing age was significantly associated with non-calcified coronary plaque in HIV-infected individuals, but not in this seronegative uh, 
com uh, control group. And in a comparable study, looking in a case-controlled fashion at coronary calcium, and also looking at vulnerable plaque as defined by positive remodeling, low attenuation, plaque, and spotty calcification, this study, too, demonstrated that among HIV-infected individuals, there were higher levels of each of these more vulnerable measures of plaque, and in particular, three-feature high-risk plaque among HIV-positive compared to HIV-negative controls. Both of these studies suggesting, in conclusion, that there's an increased prevalence of vulnerable plaque among HIV-infected individuals after controlling for traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease when compared with HIV-uninfected uninfected individuals. Other studies have attempted to look at other types of immune activation and cardiovascular disease risk. I'll just very briefly highlight a couple of these. Monocyte activation has been shown to independently be associated with greater coronary artery calcium projection or progression, um, kind of building on the previous two studies. And in attempts to look at flow-mediated vasodilation of the brachial artery, which is a surrogate marker of coronary artery disease endothelial dysfunction, FMD was measured and looked at in the context of asymmetric dimethyl arginine. For those of you who are cardiovascular disease risk aficionados, this is another marker of uh, impairment in endothelial function and in HIV uninfected populations has been associated with increased risk of intermediate and uh, high level uh, cardiovascular disease events. So ADMA levels and FMD are measures that are being monitored now in HIV-infected individuals. And in these two studies, there were some important findings that the degree of immunodeficiency prior to starting antiretroviral therapy and the degree of dysregulation of ADMA in HIV-infected populations are, were both associated with increased risk of endothelial dysfunction. Also, in a study that attempted to look at this in patients who were elite controllers with HIV infection, the investigators in this study compared them to HIV uninfected controls and to individuals who were fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy and were able to show that elite controllers looked more like HIV uninfected individuals with regard to FMD and ADMA levels than to HIV infected individuals fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, suggesting that not only are they elitely controlling their HIV infection, but they're also controlling some of the inflammatory condition that predisposes to endothelial dysfunction and cardiovascular disease risk. Lastly, looking at a different system now, the central nervous system, this is a study that was presented, a uh, randomized clinical trial that was initially set out to evaluate the utility of central nervous system targeted antiretroviral therapy, drugs that penetrate into the central nervous system, compared to non-CNS targeting ART in patients who had evidence of HIV-associated neurologic dysfunction. The study was actually stopped early by a data safety and monitoring board for futility because they were unable to identify a sufficient number over time of individuals who had hand at a level that could be evaluated in the context of this randomized trial. But they did present 49 patients who had week 16 outcomes. 
And I think the bottom line here is with this small number of patients, although there was a suggestion of a proportional reduction in global deficit score, which was their endpoint for measuring HIV-associated neurologic dysfunction, there was an interaction with baseline plasma virologic suppression treat in, and treatment suggesting that those who got CNS-targeted treatment may have had slightly better uh, outcomes at the end of week 16, but this was not statistically significant. And I think this is just a power issue because they were unable to identify sufficient numbers of patients to enroll. So once we have inflammation associated with HIV, is there something we can do about it? There's been a lot of interest knowing that statins have an impact on some of the soluble markers of inflammation. There was a very interesting randomized clinic placebo-controlled trial that looked at the effect of rosuvastatin given in a dose of 10 milligrams compared with placebo on subclinical vascular disease and skeletal health looked at changes in systemic and vascular inflammation, markers of coagulation abnormalities, and markers of immune activation. And again, you can't see the numbers specifically, but this downward line here is the rosuvastatin arm. The arm here is placebo and basically shows that there were changes in levels of systemic and vascular infl inflammatory markers and coagulation markers but no changes in markers of immune activation. And that those results are just summarized here, suggesting no significant change in cellular markers of activation, but changes in vascular activation markers and systemic inflammation markers. So this is in keeping with some of the other data that I showed you about immune activation and inflammation and its ability to predict non-AIDS-defining events. So the last topic I'm just going to briefly touch on are issues in opportunistic infections. And the first of these was a very interesting clinical trial done in Uganda. Although we think of this as not being particularly applicable to a highly resourced setting like the United States, I think it is applicable because of the potential for serious uh, iris events and complications of cryptococcal meningitis in our setting as well. This was a study referred to as the COAT study. It was a randomized clinical trial in which HIV-infected individuals who were experiencing their first episode of cryptococcal meningitis were enrolled, started on antifungal therapy within the first 7 to 11 days, were randomized to receive either immediate antiretroviral therapy or delayed antiretroviral therapy, and that was defined as more than four weeks after entry and upon discharge. And the study demonstrated a six-month survival probability that was, although not statistically significantly different, was a pretty profound difference in the immediate versus delayed therapy. Those individuals having improved survival if they delayed initiation of antiretroviral therapy. When you drill down into some of the factors that were associated with higher mortality, it was obvious that those individuals who had altered mental status at entry, a Glasgow coma score of less than 15, and those individuals who had a CSF white blood cell count of less than 5 at randomization had a highly significant increased risk of mortality if they received early antiretroviral therapy. So I think this is giving us two clues to those individuals we might want to treat with considerable caution when deciding to initiate ART during acute cryptococcal meningitis. 
The last topic relates to tuberculosis. There were a number of studies, really important studies in the TB field presented at CROI this year. The first of these were data from a phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of a novel TB vaccine. This is a replication, this is a vaccine made from replication incompetent adenovirus 35 vector containing several key mycobacterial antigens and referred to as the ARAS402 vaccine. It was administered to BCG vaccinated HIV infected persons who had relatively well preserved CD4 counts and they received two doses of the vaccine in this trial. Uh, the table here is highlighting adverse events in the proportion of individuals who experienced an adverse event. And for those who can't read it on the slide, it, you can see it in your syllabus, there were really primarily differences among the injection site reactions and some systemic reactions as well. But in general, the vaccine was well tolerated, was safe, it induced more importantly, polyfunctional T cell responses to the vaccine antigens in both CD8 and CD4 cells. And this is leading to continued evaluation of this vaccine in individuals with HIV infection. Another important point when we think about treating tuberculosis is how to treat those individuals who are receiving a rifampin-based regimen. Current recommendations suggest that Efavirenz-based treatment is the only safe antiretroviral therapy that can be used with rifampin. But in data presented from a trial from the French study, ANRS Reflate trial, this was an open-label randomized multicenter trial in ART-naive HIV-infected individuals who presented with active tuberculosis and were started on a rifampin-based regimen. They received either 400 or 800 milligrams three times daily. Uh, or that should be twice daily, excuse me, of raltegravir and compared that with efavirenz given 600 milligrams a day. And in both were in combination with tenofovir and lamivudine. And again, you can't see the numbers, but you can see the gist of the uh, graph here showing that there were relatively comparable levels at the end of week 48 in terms of virologic suppression to undetectable levels with the best outcome being seen in the efavirenz arm and in the 400 milligram BID raltegravir arm. And when looking at TB treatment success, there were comparable uh, treatment success and treatment completion rates in all three arms, therefore suggesting that there was a high rate of virologic success relative to HIV, a high rate of treatment, uh, TB treatment success relative to TB, and that raltegravir, given 400 milligrams BID, was a reasonable alternative to efavirenz in individuals who need to be treated with a rifampin-based TB regimen. And then uh, of intense interest to those of us working in the TB field now are the attempts to shorten the duration of conventional tuberculosis treatment, both to improve outcomes and to improve the treatment completion rate. In a large randomized clinical trial, multicenter and multinational, there were uh, individuals who were enrolled with smear positive pulmonary TB. 26% of patients had HIV infection but were not on antiretroviral therapy. And the three arms are listed here. The conventional treatment was as isoniazid, rifampin, ethambutol, and pyrazinamide arm given for six months. 
There were two comparator arms, a treatment shortening four-month regimen of moxifloxacin with high-dose rifapentine given twice a week, and then a six-month regimen of moxifloxacin and rifapentine given once a week. And this was compared at 18 months post-randomization follow-up. The bottom line here is that moxifloxacin arm was comparable to isoniazid when isoniazid was substituted with moxifloxacin in the two six-month regimens. But what you can see on the slide here is the four-month regimen had a higher rate of unfavorable outcomes and was clearly inferior to the control group. So this attempt at treatment shortening was unsuccessful. The last slide I'm going to present is a study about an old drug, rifampin, as I've just mentioned. And this study suggests that we can actually achieve better uh, declines in mycobacterial load and improved concentrations of the drug with higher levels of rifampin. In a 14-day study in adults with smear-positive TB, they were given consecutive doses of 10, 20, 25, 30, and 35 milligrams per kilogram. Just a reminder, 10 milligrams per kilogram is the dose we currently use in clinical practice. The bottom line from this trial is that the highest doses were well-tolerated and equally well-tolerated compared to the lowest doses of rifampin and resulted in higher concentrations, a greater decline in mycobacterial load, and an increase in the time-to-positive cultures. TTP is time-to-positivity, suggesting better antimycobacterial effect. And I'm going to end here just briefly reviewing some take-home messages from what's effectively a large number of studies I presented to you. But to take home from my discussion, functional cure of an infant appeared to have been achieved when potent antiretroviral therapy was initiated during acute HIV infection. In keeping with this, early HIV infection during acute uh, seroconversion may limit the size of the latent reservoir, and the approach with HDAC inhibitors is reasonably well tolerated in terms of activating the latent reservoir, but did not appear to have a significant effect on integrated DNA. We have promising novel agents in th three drug classes that are coming along in clinical development and may be available as alternatives for patients who may have drug-resistant virus in the future, although transmitted rates of drug resistance remain stable. HIV-associated immune activation and ongoing inflammation appear to be associated with increased risk of non-AIDS-defining events, in particular cardiovascular disease. We're seeing a glimmer of hope that statins may reduce inflammation relative to cardiovascular disease risk. There's more caution about early initiation of antiretroviral therapy in individuals who have opportunistic infections affecting the central nervous system. And there has been progress made on TB vaccines, alternative regimens for TB treatment, but we're not there yet with shortening the TB treatment regimen. And as I've said, that we may be underdosing rifampin and alternatively using higher doses of rifampin may allow us to improve TB treatment. And I'll end there. So I think we have about eight minutes for questions. Thank you. Okay, I'll start with three from the cards. Um, TB treatment study, should the dose of efavirenz be increased to 800 milligrams per day if co-administered 
with rifampin for better antiviral activity or efficacy. This is a very astute question. Many of you know that the FDA has made a recommendation that if using efavirenz with rifampin, the dose of efavirenz should be increased to 800 milligrams per day. Most of us working in the TB research world think this is an incorrect recommendation. And based on data that have well characterized pharmacokinetic data with the 600 milligram per day conventional dose of efavirenz, both antiretroviral therapy outcomes, TB treatment outcomes, and drug levels are actually better with the 600 milligrams per day dosing of efavirenz. So uh, that FDA recommendation was made on the basis of one PK study. Subsequent studies do not bear out this recommendation, and the FDA is in the process of reconsidering data from additional studies that we've presented to them. So at present, clinically, we recommend 600 milligrams per day of efavirenz. The new OI treatment guidelines that will be coming online in the next month will also recommend 600 milligrams per day. Um, next question. With the interest in early ARV intervention for functional cure, uh, what are my thoughts on possible reinvested interest in post-exposure prophylaxis, especially in sexually transmitted exposure? Um, that's a really hot question, and maybe I will punt that question to our uh, next speaker who's going to talk about the issues related to PrEP and uh, prophylaxis, but I do think that in many settings, post-exposure prophylaxis may indeed be aborting initial infection. So it is, in effect, a very early initiation of antiretroviral therapy. And although we may not be able to demonstrate benefit in, in clinical trials, I think it's a, another good rationale for post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, the final question is, with MK1439, which dose is going forward, the 25 or the 200 milligram? It's not clear at this point in the clinical development whether they've selected a dose to go forward in development. If so, I'm not aware of it. But as you saw from the study results, both doses appeared to be equally effective in terms of reduction in, in HIV RNA. And I think that means that other considerations will be taken into account in deciding a final dose. One more question. In my opinion, what topics presented at CROI was most li likely to cause a change in clinical practice? And could be, I can't read the handwriting here, but maybe if you want to come up to the uh, uh, microphones, we can talk about this. But I think there are a number of things that will change clinical practice. I think the data on cryptococcal meningitis and the data on TB treatment will change clinical practice, in particular the dosing of rifampin, the uh, use of moxifloxacin in the place of isoniazid for individuals who may not be able to take isoniazid. The trial data showed that it was equally effective in terms of TB treatment outcomes. Um, the initiation, the two factors that are associated with high risk of mortality might be targeted as ones to look for when deciding when to initiate antiretroviral therapy during the course of cryptococcal meningitis has the potential for changing clinical practice. All of these have actually made it into the new OI treatment guidelines that will be posted online shortly. And uh, 
In terms of cure and functional cure, I think it's too early to say whether any of the approaches that have been taken are going to make it into clinical practice, but I think they do support the ongoing evolution of earlier and earlier initiation of antiretroviral therapy as a point of clinical practice. So I think if there are no further questions, anyone want to come to the, po to the microphones, I'll be happy to answer questions. I wanted to ask you about the uh, so the ultrasensitive on the baby on the cure the ultrasensitive viral load showed replicating virus showed one copy per uh, million cells in HIV RNA levels so yes there was evidence of some replicating virus but, so, but the antibody is still negative as right of now. So it doesn't quite make it into that category of an elite controller because elite controllers have an antibody and this baby does not. So that's why I think there's still some controversy floating around about this baby and there may be more to come. It's, he's not controlling infection on the basis of high levels of antibody or on the basis of CD4 or CD8 specific cellular responses. So it's not clear whether this is a baby really controlling infection or not. Yeah, it's, uh... yeah so not clear. Okay, thank you for your attention.